Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. If you would please give attention to the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us go before His throne of grace and ask His blessing upon His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord God of the universe, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, who is not silent. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would meet with your people, that you would bless us with your presence, that you would illumine your word in our minds and in our hearts. We ask that you would do this by the grace of the Holy Spirit, for it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, you have an opportunity now, this morning, to look around. Look, if you would, at the walls. Look and see where the doors are. Think in your mind's eye where the restrooms are, where the office is, where the kitchen is. All of these places are places of order where things are done, where needs are met, where ministry is done. It's not that dissimilar from your homes. There's a certain place where the living room is, where the kitchen is, the bedrooms, and so on. We've been thinking about Philippians as a model for the church. And when we started looking at it, we looked at the blueprint for the church that Paul had laid down and said that it was not dissimilar to the plans drawn up for this building. And then we looked last week at the foundation that was sure that God lays down for his church. A foundation is required for any building to stand. But if I might, it's not that exciting to go out to the property and look at the foundation. You kind of look around. You know it has to be there. You know it's really important. Not very exciting. But once the walls, the girders, the frame starts to go up, then it's exciting, isn't it? We had the opportunity here when we had our flag raising, to come in and say, ooh, this is where the stove will be. And over here, this is where the nursery will be set. And and over here, this is where the fifth graders will do Sunday school. And we signed on the frames of the walls and got excited about what God would do. This morning, I want you to have that kind of thought and emotion for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you see, we're going to look today at love in the church. And love is the frame that sets up what the church is to do, 
and to be. Love lets us know the parameters of what the church should look like, laid down on the foundation that God has laid. And so what I would like us to look at this morning, by God's grace, are three things. First, I'd like us to see a love that flows. A love that flows primarily from God, but then also from His people. And then I'd like us to look at a love that flourishes in His people. Not only a love that flows from God, but a love that flourishes in His people. And then finally, I'd like us to see a love that fills. A love that fills His people with righteousness and purpose. So love that flows, love that flourishes, and love that fills. Let's look first at a love that flows in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. Paul begins in a downright emotional manner. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I hold you in my heart, and you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, the first thing that we see here in looking at love in the church is that love from the grace of God. Paul actually begins verse 7 with a word that oftentimes is, is used to mean since or for. It's not as strong as a because or a therefore, yet we're still going to look back to see what the word is there for. It points us back to that passage we looked at last two weeks from verse 1 through to verse 6. You see, Paul has this love, he has this feeling in his heart for the people of God because of what God is doing in them. Because God has called them to be saints. Because God has raised up leaders. Because God has given them grace and peace. Because God has begun a work and will perform it. The love that is found in the church begins with God. And Paul knows this. Because Paul does something that we would imagine you would do if you thought love came from a certain source. You ask the source for more of it. Look here at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul knows that the love that the Philippians have, that the work that has been begun in them is the work of God. <coughs> and so he goes to God and asks Him in his prayer to pour out even more of this same love upon His people. He goes to the source, and the source is God. Because, you see, Paul knows that the grace that God has given to the Philippians and to him is not only a grace that saves. It is a grace that energizes. It is a grace that equips for the work that a Christian is called to. Now, notice that the grace of God here operates among the Philippians in all circumstances. You see, Paul says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In every circumstance, good and bad, mundane and spectacular, the grace of God is at work. Now, none of this should surprise us because any of you who have memorized the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, I should say, in Galatians chapter 5, know that love is a 
fruit of the Spirit of God. Love comes from God. It flows from the grace of God. But it also flows from the people of God. Because you see, it is these Philippians who are committed to Paul in all his circumstances. In both his personal circumstances of his own chains and in his activity, the gospel work. You see, when Paul says they are partakers with him of grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he means a wide variety of things. He means, first of all, ordinary evangelism and ministry. They are partners with him, we looked at last week. Partners with him in the gospel ministry. But also, these words have a technical, legal import to them. To make a defense is similar to a a defense attorney standing up and giving an opening statement in a courtroom. What Paul is saying is, when I give my defense for being in jail, give my defense for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do the same thing. We are partners together. And if you are harassed, if you are arrested, if you experience the same kind of misfortune, the same kind of trying circumstances, you will give the same defense. But you aren't just satisfied with defending the gospel. No, you must confirm it as well. This again is a legal term. It means a guarantee, putting up security saying, this is the case, and I put my money where my mouth is. Some of you may have done this. You may have co-signed a loan by a child. You may have put up an automobile or even a home behind the promise that you would pay. You see, the confirmation of the gospel means not only do I believe it is right, I stake my very life upon it. I confirm that that is the truth, the truth found in the gospel. Now, this church at Philippi that is committed to Paul in all of his circumstances, that is active in ministry, also has an emotional attachment to Paul. Now, it may be at first glance very difficult to talk about the Bible encouraging us to have emotions. Because after all, aren't we supposed to not be emotionally driven? Aren't we supposed to not give in to emotionalism? Well, yes. But that doesn't mean that we are emotionless. You see, the love of God does not arise from our emotions. It arises from God Himself and from relationships and from commitments. But that kind of love is not a cold, quiet, silent love. No, it's a love that is filled with emotion. The grace of God is about proper emotions in His people. And so you need to ask yourself this morning, are you emotionally attached to the gospel? Does it thrill you? Does it cheer you? Does it comfort you? Are you emotionally attached to the people of God? As you look around, do you just say, well, there's... More people sitting here than than sitting here. Or do you look around and you say, Oh, I remember when he... Oh, I remember when they're kids. You know, a couple of months ago, we... Does it bring up thrilling memories to your mind? Do you love the church of God? Do you love the people of God? Because you see, that's what the Philippians did. 
They loved Paul passionately. They were attached to him. And that attachment showed itself in very practical ways. They were in partnership. They partook of the grace of Paul with him. They were in partnership with him, not only in the gospel, but in life. And we see this in the story of these Philippian Christians. It's no sooner than Lydia hears the gospel that immediately she throws open the doors to her home and says, please, come in, stay with me, use my home. It's no sooner that the Philippian jailer hears and accepts the gospel that he runs around trying to bind up wounds to heal, to bless. Immediate practical involvement. Love flows from God, from the grace of God, and from the people of God. But Paul shows us that it also flows from the minister of God as well. It is a love that is very real in his heart. It's so real, he says, God is my witness. God who can see the heart, who knows whether someone is being hypocritical or not. God is my witness how I yearn for you all. You see, Paul wants to show them the love that should well up in them. He puts himself on display. That's part of the job of a minister. Not to hide in a corner, but to be on display for others to see. Not perfect, but striving after the Lord according to the Word of God. It's a personal love. If we look at verse 7, not once, not twice, but three times, Paul says, you. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart and you are partakers. This is not a theoretical kind of love. This is a personal attachment that Paul has to his people. It's an intense love. He says, I yearn for you. Now that's kind of a, an old 50s-ish kind of word, right? We don't go yearning after things too often. I, I don't think many teens use that word. So let me perhaps put it in a bit more of context for you. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2 to describe the homesick feeling of Epaphroditus, how he yearns to be back at Philippi. Now, have you ever been away from home so long that you're homesick? You know what I mean, where vacation has bled into trip, has bled into, am I ever going to get back? Where it was fun to have a suitcase full of clothes the first few days, but on week number three, you start realizing, I wish I had my own iron, and I wish I had my own chair, and I wish I had my own couch, and I wish I had my own car, right? You get homesick. You can't sleep at night. You think about home. You think about others who were there. That's the kind of love that Paul has for the Philippians. It makes him heartsick to be apart from them. It's such an intense love that the only way that Paul can describe it is to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you notice that? In verse 7, he says, I hold you in my heart. But then, in verse 8, he says, I long for you all, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, it's the kind of love that Christ has. That's the love that Paul has for his fellow believers. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because 
Paul also said, I live. Nevertheless, it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. You see, Jesus Christ lives in the believer. And He loves through and for the believer. Creating a bond that is unknown throughout the world. That is supernatural. That is beyond understanding. This kind of bond is so contrary to the fickleness that we see today, isn't it? I know many of you have heard the statistics. I've quoted them to you. That I believe the average stay for a minister in a congregation, depending on denomination, is somewhere between three and five years. Sad to say, that's often also the case for a member of a congregation. A minister doesn't like the way things are going, and so he leaves. He doesn't like some people giving him trouble, and so he leaves. The members don't like the way things look, and so they leave. They have a conflict or a potential conflict, and so they leave. You see, that is what our mobile society allows, but that's not the truth of the church of God from the Scriptures. The reality is that we are bound together in love, supporting each other through good and bad, through thick and thin, working together, striving and struggling together through the bumps and glitches of life. It's no coincidence that the church is described as the family of God. You can't just kick a kid to the curb the first time he doesn't clean his room. You can't just pack up your clothes and walk out the first time dinner isn't what you expected. You work with one another. You love one another. You minister to one another. That's what the church does. This is a love that flows from God. But it doesn't just come from God and rest in us. It's a love that flourishes as well. Because you see, Paul's prayer is not that they would have love. They already have it. His prayer is that their love would flourish. It would abound more and more, is the phrase that Paul uses. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. This phrase has so many piled on adjectives and adverbs that it occurs nowhere else in the scriptures. It uses a common word for more in the Greek and doubles it and then says still. And the verb is not just grow, it's to to, to flow out abundantly, to bubble up. The idea is of a spring that bubbles up and you cannot stop and it just keeps flowing and flowing and soaking the, the grass around it and soaking the area around it, flowing out from the spring. This is what Paul wants their love to be like. You see, he knows that they have love. After all, that is the test of what it means to be a Christian. John says in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. It's the same reason why Christ uses love for one another as evidence that we are of God. They will know we are Christians by our love for one another. And so the question comes to you, do you want real love? Do you long for real significance and meaning and love? The answer is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not be found in hobbies. It will not be found in work. 
It will not even be found in a commitment to your family. The only place that love begins and flows out abundantly is from the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know that kind of love, if your love comes and goes, if it doesn't flow out of you onto others, splashing everyone around you, then you have to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can give you that kind of love. But the love that comes from Jesus Christ is not a static love. It must grow. The tense that is used here of this verb is a present tense. He doesn't say, I hope sometime in the future, when you get around to it and get your act together, your love might increase. He says, right now, this very minute, your love should abound and grow and increase. And that means that we must cultivate that love like a garden, like a spring. We must see that it is kept clear of weeds. We must be committed to that love, looking for growth, waiting to see it spring up and have its effects known all around us. This love flourishes in abundance, but it also flourishes in accuracy. What do I mean by that? If we look here, Paul's prayer is not just that their love may abound more and more. But his prayer is that it would do so with knowledge and all discernment. And that phrase means that the sphere in which the love will abound is knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment are essential that love may grow and abound. You see, oftentimes in our day and age, we think of love as something that only happens when you check your mind at the door. It is something beyond reason, against reason. You see this all the time in popular books and films and television shows. That's what love is. It's, quote, following your heart, not your head. But that's not biblical love. Because, you see, biblical love grows and flourishes where knowledge and discernment is found. What does that mean? Well, the word here for knowledge is a very interesting word. It is only really used by Paul, and it has a very specific meaning to it. It means knowing something as it really is. It's having a mental grasp of a spiritual truth. So, for example, we see Paul use this word in Romans 3, verse 20, where he says, It is by the law that I had knowledge of sin. I didn't just think about sin. I didn't just know it existed. When I really knew the law, I really understood what sin was. You see, that's what Paul wants here. He wants the Philippians to have a grasp of the truth of love to know what it is about, to know what it really is, what real meaning it has. And that means that it is not something that is a fixed quantity of knowledge. No, it is something that is developed. That is the main difference between people and computers. Computers can, quote, think faster than people. But all they can do is search the data that is put in them. They can't be, they can't be inventive. They can't be thoughtful. 
They can't think beyond the information they have. They cannot grow in their knowledge. All they can merely do is have a set of facts and regurgitate them. But you see, the knowledge that people have is such that it grows. It flourishes. It leads to new discoveries. It leads to creativity. That's the kind of knowledge that we are to have. A knowledge where we never get to the end. It's been said that the scriptures, for example, are as shallow as a wading pool to the young Christian, but as deep as the ocean to one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. You can never plumb the depths of the scriptures. Because you see, that is the source of our knowledge. Our knowledge is governed by scripture. We have this kind of knowledge because of the work of the Spirit. It is not just study. You cannot simply get out a series of books and study your way into this kind of knowledge. It is the work of the Holy Spirit within you, prompting you, guiding you, illuminating the Scripture. And that means that every Christian must be a student of the Scriptures. Not just children, not just Sunday school teachers, not just ministers. Every Christian must be a student of the Scriptures to know what the Bible teaches. Because that is what Paul is praying for for the Philippians. He wants them to know a love that is guided by Scripture. But Paul is also a missionary pastor. And so he doesn't just want them to have a mental grasp of the spiritual truth, as important as that is. He wants them to apply it. And so their love flourishes in application as well. Because Paul says, I want you to abound in love, not only in knowledge, but with all discernment as well. You've heard this saying, love is blind, right? And perhaps love is blind in the sense that it doesn't have prejudices. But biblical love is not blind. You see, in order to have true love, we must have insight. We must have insight into a person, insight into a family. We must see the real need there in order to respond to it. You don't show love to someone who is allergic to flowers by shoving a big bouquet in their nose. You have to have insight as to who they are, what they need. This is the kind of application of love that Paul is talking about. We are to grasp the significance of what God is saying in His Word. It's when knowledge moves from mere knowledge to obedience. We say not just, what do the Scriptures teach? which is an essential question. But we say, how do they affect our lives? How do they affect the way in which we love? The Scriptures tell us who to love and what love to show, but how do we do that? It's discernment that points this out. It's a practical understanding, an awareness of all of the circumstances, of all kinds of circumstances, Paul says, with all discernment. This is a love that flourishes. Finally, we see that Paul prays that the church would not only have a love that flows from God and a love that flourishes in them, but he also prays that they would have a love that fills 
a love that fills them and their community. He says here in verse 10, he makes this prayer so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, this is a love that fills our lives with reality. You see, the Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ, needs to be real. The Lord Jesus Christ does not want play acting. He's not ready and able to simply stand by and watch his people go through the motions. No. The Lord pushes us on to be real, to show real love, to participate with one another. And one of the ways in which we see this is by approving what is excellent. Now, what does that mean? You've heard it said that one of the models of this church when it started was to do all things with excellence. Now, excellence doesn't just show up on your doorstep, does it? Even in something as simple as a golf swing, you don't just decide one day to go out to the course, put a ball on a tee, and swing with excellence, do you? No. You do, after you've done that swing, say, five or 10,000 times, but you must act. You must practice. It must be put to the test. You must swing and have someone tweak it or show you where to put your feet. Your arms are in the wrong position. You need to hold the club this way. That's the kind of test that Paul is talking about here. It is recognizing not only the worth of something, but putting it to the test. We might think about it this way. One of the at least popular ways to think about testing if something is a diamond is not just to look at it and see if it is valuable, but you go up to a piece of glass and you mark it and you see if the diamond cuts the glass. You not only recognize the worth of the diamond, you put it to the test. And if it can't handle the test, if it crumbles in your hands, you throw it away. It doesn't have any worth because it couldn't stand up to the test. This is the kind of love that fills the lives of the Philippians. It's a love that not only approves what is excellent, but it is a love that leads to purity. And by purity here, Paul means personal integrity. This is not just about how you live your life before marriage. It is how you live your life every single day with integrity before others. Because you see... As people look at the church, they want to know that we are real. People are not going to consider Jesus Christ something worth changing their entire life over, committing themselves wholly to, when they look around and see a bunch of fakers. They want to know that there's reality to the gospel. Not that it makes us all happy all the time, or that it heals every sickness we have, but that in the midst of real life, we are real people acting according to the Word of God. The word here that's used for pure has, at least in some sense as its etymology, the idea of being without wax. You may have heard that wax was a way in which potters covered up their mistakes in the ancient world. What they would do is they would make clay and put it on a potting wheel and spin it and try and get it perfect. There's only one problem. Sometimes there'd be an air pocket or they would miss a spot and there would be a crack in the clay as it hardened. 
Well, they weren't about to just throw the pot away. They had a lot of work and money into it. So what they would do is they would take wax, stuff it in the hole, and then paint over it. And the only way to know was to take it out in the sunshine and hold it up and turn it around and to see if you could see the gap. That's where real purity is found. It's found when it is tested before the light of the sun. I have two suits that are almost identical. They're so almost identical that many of you think probably I only have one suit. I have a black suit and I have a navy suit. As I'm in my closet, it's often very difficult to tell which suit is which. And I have this sort of, in the back of my mind, fear that one day I'm going to come with a black coat and a navy blue set of trousers. And so in order to prevent that, I actually will pick up the hangers and walk out toward the front door and hold them out in the sunlight, and then I can tell. Because the sunlight shows up the reality of the situation. That's what life should be like for the church of the living God. We should embrace light. We should embrace vulnerability, sunshine, because it shows the reality of the work of God in our midst. But it's not just our personal integrity that we should be concerned with. It's also our relational integrity. Because you see, Paul says we are to be not only pure, but we are to be blameless. Now, blameless does not mean perfect. Because if Paul wanted to be blameless, he'd already blown it. He had murdered the church of God. What blameless means is being without cause for someone to charge you. It actually has two ways you could think about it. It means not stumbling in your walk. But it also means not causing others to stumble. You see, Paul's prayer is that we would be pure and that we would be blameless, that we would have integrity and that we would encourage integrity amongst others. This love fills our lives with reality and we become real before a watching world. It also fills our conduct with righteousness. Because you see, Paul's prayer is that they would be pure and blameless, but that they would also be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is the result of patient progress. Now, if you're like me, you don't like waiting for something. I've gotten to the point now where I don't like the microwave dinner that when I put it in requires me to wait four or five minutes for it to be done. Can't they make microwaves that work faster? Can I get this in 45 seconds? I mean, come on now. I don't like waiting for change in others around me. I look around them and I say, can't you get your act together? Don't you know what you're supposed to do? Don't you know this is how you're supposed to do this? I don't like waiting for myself either. I go to bed at night and I say, why in the world can I just not get this straight? I don't like to wait. But you see, the Christian life is not about a series of spectacular events that we have. It's about patient progress in the gospel. It's about day upon day upon day, showing love hour by hour by hour. That is what we are called to. And that progress isn't always easy. As a matter of fact, this fruit is not only the result of patient progress, it's the result of 
painful progress. You know that phrase in Hebrews 12 where it talks about discipline being the result of a loving God trying to bear fruit in us? You know what kind of fruit it bears? The fruit of righteousness. The discipline of the Lord is not pleasant, the Scriptures say, but it is necessary. And so the Lord is not finished with us yet. And so this progress can be painful at times as we make mistakes, as we hurt others, as others hurt us. But the love of Jesus Christ that flows out abundantly over and around us bears great fruit, fruit of righteousness. It is fruit that is from God. You see, if you ever wonder, why do I have to work so hard when everything is of grace? Isn't God supposed to do this? Why do I have to struggle to pray? Why do I have to struggle to read the Scriptures? And maybe you think you're the only one that struggles, that everybody else is skipping along easily down the path of the Christian life. But you see, that's not the case. Life is a struggle because it is the outworking of what God has already inworked in us. You see, this fruit of righteousness comes, Paul says, through Jesus Christ. It is God's work in us. And so this love then not only fills our lives with reality, it not only fills our conduct with righteousness, but it fills our focus upon the Lord. Because you see, all of this is done to the glory and praise of God. Now, do you see the chain here that Paul has set up? Look in your Bibles. Paul has a prayer in verse 9. And his prayer is so that they might have love that abounds in knowledge and discernment. And he wants them to have this kind of love with the result that they will endure and blameless. And all of this is happening so that glory and praise might come to God. You see, our purity, our blamelessness is not for its own sake. Our love abounding is not for its own sake. It is for the sake of the glory of God. That's why Paul is focused upon the day of Jesus Christ, both here in verse 10 and in verse 6. You see, obedience and love are not options for the Christian. But yet, God is the beginner, the perfecter, and the finisher of this work. As we close, turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. I want to just show you what this looks like. It's at the end of a parable you all know so well. Mark chapter 4, verse 26, it follows the parable of the sower of the seed. But this is the parable of the gardener. Our Lord says in verse 26, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's a picture of your life, beloved. The seed was scattered. It took root. And God is providing the growth. Now, in the midst of that, the gardener has to weed. He has to water. He has to make sure there's proper sunlight. But even if he does all that, he does not know how the growth has occurred. 
Because it's not of Him. It's of God. This is what my prayer for Christ churches. That we would grow in love. Love that is the result of knowledge and discernment. And that our lives would be exemplary before a watching world. That we might give praise to God and know that God was truly in our midst. That He was at work. Is that your prayer? I invite you to pray that prayer. To work at it. To see the work that God will do. Let us pray.